to The Tenderness Revolution, a podcast about the stories of kindness, compassion and empathy that play out in our lives, because these deeply moving experiences describe what it means to be human and invite us into a new way of thinking about the world and each other. I'm your host, writer and journalist Yvonne Gavin. And every episode, I'll be asking a new interviewee about a pivotal moment of tenderness that helped shape the course of their life. I'm here today with Nidhi Pandya. Nidhi is an expert, practitioner and speaker on Ayurveda, an ancient system of medicine that originated in India thousands of years ago and treats humans as complex individuals whose health is defined as a state of balance in both their internal and external environments, and is based on the idea that the whole of life is sacred. Growing up with four brothers and two sisters in India as the granddaughter of an Ayurvedic practitioner, principles of the ancient system such as the idea that we all have bio-individuality and all play a vital role in the world's ecosystem, were etched into her psyche from birth. Nidhi currently runs an Ayurvedic practice in New York, where she lives with her two daughters. During our conversation, we discussed how the idea of tenderness towards the body is central to Ayurveda, and Nidhi gave lots of examples about how we can incorporate this extremely helpful practice into our own lives. Well, hi Nidhi, it's great to have you on the Tenderness Revolution. Thank you so much for coming on today. It is such a pleasure to be here, Yvonne, and truly honoured and really looking forward to this chat. It's wonderful to see you all the way in New York. Thank you, Ivan. So as I wanted to start off, as I always do, by asking you, uh, Nidhi, to share your moment of tenderness with us, because the idea behind the Tenderness Revolution podcast is that essentially our lives are made up of all these little stories stitched together. And when we shine a light on scenes, when we felt a profound sense of connection to something bigger than ourselves, moments when we felt seen or understood or that we had a deeper relationship to the world around us, it's as though we're awakened to a greater sense of meaning and purpose. So Nidhi, please do tell us your moment of tenderness. Right. So Iwan, it's going to go back to, to many, many years ago. I was raised very spiritually in an Ayurvedic family uh, with a lot of freedom, freedom to think, freedom to, to love, just to appreciate the world for what it is. That being said, I was still in my bubble because everybody around me was on the same path. When I moved to the US about 17, 18 years ago, I found myself working for a pharmaceutical company. Um, I had, there was limited job opportunity given my educational background, different degrees. And while I was doing marketing for the pharmaceutical company, uh, and I had this immense great health background that I may have slightly taken for granted. But there was this one particular meeting that I remember where we were talking about a certain drug that had that the expiration of its patent was imminent. And the meeting was about that now since the patent is expiring, how do we keep the sales intact? So they said, let's find more conditions, more medical conditions that this drug can be used for. And that whole conversation left me extremely uneasy. Because 
here I felt like we're in the business technically of healing, but we're but we're actually talking about how how can you manipulate the sales of these drugs, right? And just driving back, you know, actually even way back when I was 18 years old, and this is way before this period, I always heard that Nidhi, you were you're meant for marketing. You know, you have a flair for marketing. And I have a poetry that I wrote from back then that it says, you know, that that here I am, you know, apparently this marketer, but my whole life is about discovering the truth. And that marketing sometimes often felt like manipulation of the truth to me. So anyways, I heard I was torn questioning this marketing job, questioning pharmaceutical, questioning health, questioning everything that I had. It so happened that maybe within a couple of weeks, I realized that I was pregnant with my first daughter. And that said, like the whole world stopped for me. I froze in my tracks and I said, something is not right. And I've known this for a long time, but now I have to open that dark chest and pop my head inside and look inside and see what it is for. And I think what happened after that was this whole journey, liberating journey, where I said that there is a way to live more authentically, connect with our bodies in a more intuitive, deeper fashion. And it doesn't matter where you live, whether you're living in the US or you're living in the family that I did back in India, there is still a way to really live like you're connected within like every other organism in the planet or the planet does and live like that. So right through my pregnancy, I did all of that work and I've never looked back, you know, and it's been, uh, it's been a journey that has just been the most heartwarming and liberating and empowering. Gosh, that's so interesting how, you know, those, those few kind of events came together, the, you know, the sort of realization that maybe working in, that world that the big pharmaceutical world wasn't for you and also you know realizing that you were pregnant with your first child and often that brings up feelings for for so many of us about are we you know questioning what we're doing and are we on the right path you know it's often sort of a, a time where you know we reflect on on all of those things so that's really wonderful and and also how you thought about yourself um, as a child and I mean Ayurveda was really a very big part of your childhood wasn't it your your grandfather was a an Ayurvedic practitioner um, and I I've been sort of looking into Ayurveda uh, a bit recently since I came across you actually on Instagram um, I think I first watched a video on there that you you were doing and I found if I'm really honest I just found I really wanted to connect with you because it made me feel a deep sense of calm watching you and hearing you talk about the body in the way that you do. It it felt like tenderness. It felt like what you were calling your the people who are interacting with you, what you were calling them to do was to listen deeply to something that isn't often talked about. Um, especially I think in medicine where, you know, we're often conditioned to think about our health in terms of, well, that's something that doctors take care of. You know, it's something that people outside of me know about, but it's not something that I will know about because, you know, I can't possibly know um, about what's going on in my body. Um, And I think 
especially now with how busy everyone's lives are and you know we've had a very strange couple of years on this planet I think it is very difficult to have that connection with your body and we tend to go up into our heads and I definitely do it myself um but it seems to me that Ayurveda encourages a different approach to to the body an intuitive approach could you talk us through how Ayurveda does that Absolutely, Yvonne, right? So while Ayurveda is very scientific and gives you really defined code, right? It gives you a very defined code and teaches you how to decipher the code of your own body. So there's a code of the universe, right? Which is unchanging. And there is a code to your own personal body. And you have to identify and unlock that code, right? So while this all sounds mumbo jumbo, let me go back and explain um, what I mean, right? I, the first thing that I like to use is the example of Helen Keller. You know, she was blind and she, there, it's, it's known that, even, that because she was blind, she could use some of her other senses in a more advanced fashion. For example, she could tell when somebody was one mile away, she could tell that, hey, this is the person and she could sense energetically or through her senses what was going on. The reason why I bring that up is because our senses, right, when we, we are so engaged in our senses, but when we kind of shut them down and we go within, like often people that you see who have one sense organ not working do, we tap into something deeper. We know that dogs can, for example, hear more sounds than humans, right? Mm. So, so there is, you know, all we see through our senses is not what it is. So the way these ancient texts were written was with that understanding that human beings have this deep inner sixth sense, intuition, this instinct that tells them about the laws of the universe, right? Mm -hmm. um, the other example that I want to use and is when a baby is born, the baby is not even familiar with how it's, it looks, right? The baby's never seen a biology book saying that this is how my mom's going to look. This is how, this is the mouth I'm going to use to consume. But you, you know, you've been a mother, Yvonne, and the baby is born and the doctor puts the baby on the mother's chest and the baby knows right away to open its mouth and start suckling on the mother's breast. Mm. This is without training. There's no training involved. The most beautiful processes in this world require no training. I also use the example of intercourse, right? A man and woman come together, they get lost in a moment, and what comes out of it is life. I mean, how profound is that? It's an intuitive process. Mm. All you have to do is bring your presence to that moment. Mm. Something you cannot replicate in a lab. So the reason why I give this is because these are, this is how the texts were written. The texts were written with this level of deep knowing, understanding that the human beings, as is the macro, right? The saying goes, as is the macro, so is the micro. As is the micro, so is such as the macro. So it's understood that we are diurnal mammals. There is an order in the universe. We rise with the sun, we sleep with the sun. And now there's an internal climate that we carry in our own bodies. And there's a certain climate that we thrive in. All our job is, is to understand your own internal climate, right? That you may have gone out of balance. So there's a certain internal climate that we all thrive in and just, it's a temperate zone. Your bodies, your warm blooded bodies with good bacteria that live in a temperate zone with your breath being warm and moist, with your blood being warm and moist, that is the climate. 
when you tune in and you see where your climate has gone off, either you've become cold and dry, you've become cold and humid, you've become, uh, you know, uh, hot and dry, hot and humid. All you have to do is bring yourself back to that temperate zone. If you were working with a piece of land, it would be very easy for anyone to do that. They'd say, hey, my land needs more sun. It needs less sun. It needs more water. It needs less water. Similarly, we identify the climate of our body. We see how it functions with the universe and you know, live in accordance with the sun, just as many um, other species on this planet do. And then that's it. It's as simple as that. It may sound simple. It's actually simpler than what it sounds. It's actually super simple. And we've lost that intuition for generations before us. We've had communities across the world where people have lived up to over 100 to be centenarians and in a healthful manner, just with that same intuitive understanding. So, of course, Ayurveda has a certain system, a certain way where you can decipher this code of your own body that, hey, what is my body's tendency? Does it become... Does my body tend to become hot and humid? Does it tend to become cold and humid? Like where does it go off in its temperature, in its, you know, in, in, in its humidity? And with that, you bring it back in balance. And people call it doshas, kapha, pitta, vata. I've been working more with a more intuitive understanding and calling it the inner climate. Mm, I really want to get into the doshas in a minute because that's, fascinating and it's a really crucial part of a big big part of Ayurveda um it's really interesting what you're saying about this kind of ancient wisdom because I I really am fascinated by that and how you know we we really have lost touch with that inner sort of knowing I think that we did have thousands of years ago and I think I'm not against Western medicine at all. I think it it is amazing and it definitely has its place. I think particularly in emergency healthcare situations, the technology we have today is unbelievable. My, my dad, for example, he, he didn't have emergency surgery, but he had a knee replacement and it was actually performed by a robot <laughs> um, a couple of weeks ago. So it's really incredible what, you know, what can be done now and the precision that can be, be brought to surgery um types of surgery like that that used to be quite quite difficult to get 100% accurate um and also obviously i think this thing about i think there's often a lot of opposition to health systems or, or more ancient practices like ayurveda um because there's a sense that well you know how would Ayurveda help you if you're on the verge of having a heart attack? And maybe you you have something to say about that. But I think for me, it's more to do about learning to listen to your body in the longer term, on the in a day to day basis, and also in a preventative basis, which I think is something that we could all learn a lot from. Um, but that thing you were talking about in terms of learning to trust yourself and tune in to your senses how how can we do that when we're 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 living in this world that we're in today right you know and and i think that begins with a basic understanding of your body first right so a basic understanding of 
And we can even study that through our own introspection. And that's why even I go back to that whole climate, right? To identify, hey, what is what is what does my body feel like inside? And really put your mind to it. And, and that's why I always say people starters, like, where do you start? And I say, like, I'm going to go back to it. Like, exhale your breath on your, on your palm and feel what it feels like. It's warm and moist. Your urine is warm and moist. The blood in your veins is warm and moist. The mother's milk is warm and moist. Mm. Your reproductive fluids are warm and moist. The probiotic environment, right? What, what is probiotic? It's the good flora and fauna. Where does good flora and fauna exist in the universe? Where it's nice, warm and moist. If it's too hot and humid, it'll become overly tropical and you can get parasites. And the same thing can happen in your gut, actually. Um, you can get dysbiosis of the gut. But mm. they're warm and moist. And then say, and then start examining your own symptoms. Hey, am I getting, is, is it overheating? Is my body overheating? Am I feeling heartburn? Is, you know, do I have burning in my stools? Am I overly flushed in the sun? Examine your body to see if you are extra humid. Hey, do I have secretions from my eyes? Do I have excess congestion? Does my, so when you understand this, right, you understand the climate of your body. Mm. And then again, the doshas are also very useful. And I tell people, don't have to go and take a quiz on the doshas. And we can go into the doshas a little bit. But just create an awareness that, hey, what do I do to keep my body warm and moist? And that's how the yogis eat. These are super simple principles, Yvonne, that you eat warm and moist foods, like everything should be cooked according to Ayurveda, everything should be spiced. Good spices, not spicy, but spiced, which is different. A good spice is that which is not spicy to your tongue, but it's still called a spice like cloves, cumin, cinnamon. So you use good spices in your food. You always cook your food. You add in the moisture by picking naturally moist foods like sweet potatoes, avocados, rice, but you can also add good fat, right? So that's, that's how your food should look because you're supporting the warm and moist environment inside. And then again, you know, you work with the cycle of the sun. When the sun is at its peak, you eat your heaviest meal. When the sun is setting, you eat your smallest meal. So there's some principles. And I tell, I tell people, if you just follow these two principles of eating the right warm and moist foods, mm -hmm. um, and you eat according to the cycle of the sun, you've, you've fixed 60% of it. Mm -hmm. The remaining 40% of it, you do by identifying your unique body's tendency right? So everybody's body could have a unique tendency. And that's what the three doshas are, okay. kapha, pitta, vata. Right. Just and then of course you, we can sorry, just it. before you explain the, the doshas, I'm really, really interested to hear you explain how they're, they're distinct from each other and how we can identify them in ourselves. Why, why should we avoid, for example, like raw foods? What, what effect could that have on the body? Right. Now, even in certain conditions, right, raw foods could be very useful for a short period of time. For example, when somebody has excess, excess slime, excess humidity, high blood pressure, cholesterol in their system, then you need something to scrape it through. And sometimes those raw foods can allow for that excess absorption of the slime, of the plaque, and then when you come back to equilibrium, I say, go back to eating your cooked foods. But I'll tell you why raw foods are contraindicated. And I'm going to take you back to when the Homo erectus species billions of years ago invented, discovered fire and started 
using fire to cook foods. The size of our brain changed, our stomach changed, the lining of our gut changed. We became full homo sapiens. We became the species that we are, this evolved intelligent species, because a lot of energy was being used to really break down our foods before this. When we are able to cook part of our foods, especially you know foods, hard foods that require a lot of cooking, um, when we're able to do some of that work, bring it to just the right place where the nutrients have just exploded and started to disintegrate and you consume your foods then, it requires much less energy because you want to maintain the warmth in your gut, right? If you're seeking to maintain the warmth and the moisture, you don't wanna be using all the heat in your system to cook raw foods. At the end of the day, everybody's bowels look the same. The journey from raw to elimination becomes really, really a long journey <laughs> if you're not going to support it by a little bit of cooking. In the long term, when people overdo raw foods, yes, you know, in a, in a lab, it may measure richer in nutrients, but doesn't mean that your body can actually make use of mm -hmm. all of those nutrients and absorb because it. your body is putting so much more energy. Yes, it's putting so much more energy. The entire bacteria, the environment, right? I don't like to use the word bacteria because even though everybody knows the word bacteria, nobody really understands what bacteria does, right? But the good bacteria in your gut, which exists in this warm and moist place, now it kind of has become, you know, it's the warmth has been used up um, and the moisture is kind of dried up. And then it's all windy and gassy. I actually work with models, with a lot of models I've worked. And I've seen that, you know, sometimes when they have eaten raw for 5, 10, 12 years, they've gotten serious gut issues and, you know, H. pylori, all kinds of things, because there's been such a, uh, the environment of the gut is so affected, Yvonne. And I'm so fortunate, right, that I've seen a whole, growing up in a joint family of 14 people, where, you know, we've had three mothers get it, you know, from other families come and live with us. I've had my sister-in-laws from other families come and live with us. And you've still seen when they adopt this lifestyle, what a huge difference in the way they feel and, you know, live. Um, yeah, that's the reason. Well, that's really fascinating. So please do describe the doshas now and how they fit together. Got it. So, you know, uh, I, and I, anybody who's listening to this, I don't want you to obsess over the names of the doshas yet, right? But uh, we have to think of our body as this constant journey that our body is making, right? So it's constantly building. There is a building function. We are born as little kids, like 19-inch babies. And so quickly, we become full-grown in 14 years. So your body has this building inherent ability to build, right? Build bones, build tissue, build cells all of that. So that's one function that all our bodies have. It requires really tangible material. Then the other function that our body is doing constantly is transforming, right? Because it's transforming the food that you eat. It's transforming the, you know, when you, when you see something, it has to transform nervous impulses, it's transformation. Um, when, if, let's say you conceive, you know, you, you as a woman, if you receive an egg, so you receive a sperm, then your egg and the sperm get together in this transformation. So there's always transformation. And then the third function of the body is movement of substances and, and kind of uh, depletion or decline, right? So all substances in your blood needs to travel, substances, you're, you're breathing in and out. There's a lot of movement happening in your body. And um, also that movement and 
decline or expulsion, right? You're pushing a baby out, you're having a bowel movement, you're eliminating. So these three functions are supported by the three doshas, the building function, right? So we all have these functional units in our bodies. The building is supported by the so-called kapha dosha, the transformation, which requires heat because all transformation requires heat, is supported by the pitta dosha. And this whole movement is supported by the vata dosha. So we all have all three of them. But what happens, Yvonne, is that either you're born or as you go through life, we may develop a tendency to be to exaggerate. Our body may exaggerate one of these three functions. And that's when people say, hey, I'm a kapha, which means that your body is building more, your building function. So you're building more tissue. You have, you know, larger features naturally if you're born with that excess kapha. Um, you know, the, the bigger you are, the more built you are, the slower you move. You have more secretions. You have slower digestion because everything is, is preserving, is building. Right? And of course, you know, we can get, we ideally when you study, you get more into this, but it's seldom explained like that um, in terms of its function, building, preserving function, preservation of life function. Then if you, let's say people have an exaggerated pitta function, you know, and people can say, hey, I'm pitta dosha, which means that their body is transforming very quickly. They go into the sun and get sunburned. There's excess heat, excess acne. They eat food and they're like off to the bathroom twice a, twice a day with their meals, right? Um, a heartburn, acne, reaction to the sun, everything transformation and heat related. Let's say you have an exaggerated vata function, which is movement and expulsion. That means, you know, you see people who are just always moving. Everything is super fast. They may think fast. They may talk fast. They may act fast. They're always responding. They have the slightest urge to pee, but their body will send a nervous signal that, hey, you want to pee? So they're always going to the bathroom. They have a hard time building. They're not building like the kapha. So they're usually skinnier. They're sleeping less because their nervous system has so much movement. So when you really go into these three doshas and you understand the tendencies, then you can, then you have to ask yourself every time you experience a symptom, is this a building symptom? Is this a transforming symptom? Is this a, like a movement and expulsion or a decline function? And then that's, that, that, that's where you start understanding your body. You start questioning, hey, am I a builder? What am I? What is my predominant dosha so as to say? And then you work accordingly. Gosh, that's really fascinating, Nidhi. I've never heard it put in terms of building, transforming and move, moving. Is that the third one? Yes. yes. Um, that's a really um, fresh sort of way of, of understanding the, do the doshas for me because I've only ever seen them as those quizzes that you mentioned at the beginning. And it's all about your body shape and, and often even things like your hair color and... Um, I, I don't know how much truth there is in those things, or do you find those quizzes helpful? I think they're just fun to do, Yvonne, but you know, now I'm just going to ask you a simple thing, right? So when I talk about these three doshas, uh, and let's say somebody has a tendency to build since they were in the womb, which one of these three is the building, the transformer, or the, the, the vata, the movement and decline, who will have the thickest hair? Right, so the builder, yeah. Right, so that's the kapha. Right, it's kapha dosha, right? I see. But, but I'd, I'd rather work backwards than take a quiz, right? Because the quiz doesn't tell you what it's doing. I'd rather, you know, when people say big eyes, bigger mouth, slower digestion. But if you really go deep into right. the function, right, then you 
my whole goal is to make it intuitive, you know, the yeah. whole, not to make it academic, to make it intuitive, to start understanding it that way. And um, once people, of course, I've summed up for you in five minutes, what could take three, four, you know, I mean, it could take years, it could take days, it could take months. But I say that once you get the concept and you spend even a few weeks sitting on it, uh, the world begins to open up, you know, just a little bit more reading. Unfortunately, there's not much online, but a little bit more deeper, just saying curiosity. You have to just bring curiosity mm. to it. Mm. And then the world opens up and, you know, boom, boom, boom. Everything makes sense. I mean, even everything in the world makes sense. I think it's such an interesting perspective to take on humans and on each other because, and I do think there's a lot of, of tenderness in it because I personally don't feel that there is a great appreciation of difference in our world. And I feel that difference, I mean, even in the healthcare system, for example, in Western medicine, it's based on a very much of a one size fits all you know, sort of model. And I, I totally understand why, you know, I'm from the UK and the National Health Service is incredible. But, you know, in the work that it does, but it it it's very much of a, I think, sort of a last port of call, you know, if you if you can develop this kind of intuition around your body and around it, what it needs and what what makes it feel good and, and notice when things don't feel good, then do go and see the doctor if you know that, or feel that there's something seriously wrong. I think that sort of approach is definitely something that would, I think, really, really help lots of people. Um, but I just think it's wonderful to appreciate that we are all different and actually, you know, what really works for someone in terms of a food that really suits them might not work for someone else and the same goes with different types of exercise that's a, a, also a part of, of Ayurveda as well um, how, how, how might that play out then in terms of the different doshas? Right Yvonne I mean the, I also want to just say right the whole definition of Ayurveda is the science of life um, uh, and Ayu means life, Veda means science. So it's, you know, how physics is the science of mechanics and chemistry is the science of chemicals. Ayurveda is the science of life. Anything to do with life is Ayurveda. If you can look at life through the lens of this deep understanding at a granular level, but it doesn't matter what you're doing, you're practicing Ayurveda, right? In a way. Um, so it's just, again, it's again, bringing back to an intuition and somebody's body likes to build, right. And likes to store and store and store. And you see, you're getting bigger and you eat the same amount, but your body likes to hold on to it and store it. Then you, of course, would need then intuitively, Yvonne, would they need more exercise or less? Maybe more. More, right. Because you're building, but you want to move towards transformation. You want to get them moving. You want to get your system moving. So similarly, when people who are overly transforming and overly heating up their bodies just naturally, they need exercise in cooler environments. They can't burn themselves out. A person like that, when they go for hot yoga, it's like they're already on fire. They're already transforming. And you go for hot yoga, you're just burning out. You know, let's go to the vata dosha, right? If you're like this lean and skinny because you're always, your body is moving all the time, you need something more restorative and grounding. 
And the same thing for foods. The builders will eat food that's less building because their body anyways likes to build. The transformers will eat food. I'm quite saying transformers. <laughs> the pitas will eat food um, that's more cooling because their body is already heated. Mm. And if you're vata, you'll eat because you're always moving, you'll eat something that's more grounded, mm. grounding like root vegetables. So it's bringing back the intuition into the science and understanding even the minds, right? So the kapha mind or the builder's mind likes to hold on to emotions, like to, likes to hold on to everything, likes comfort zones, everything that is holding, building, preserving. So the mind needs more stimulation. They may talk slower because they're just, you know, holding on more. Anything that's big and built moves slowly. It's the opposite of vata, which is the movement and decline, right? This is the preservation and building. The pitta mind is sharp sharp, angry, focused. The vata mind is all over the place. You can get anxious even, right? Because when, you're, when you have so many thoughts, anxiety is possible. Mm, I think that's, I have a lot of that, I think, in me. And I've, what I've found is interesting is that my husband and I, he, he always says, I can't keep up with your thinking because I tend to move really quickly from one I'll be talking about something and then suddenly I'm, I've connected it to something else. And then he's like, I, yeah, I just need to go back <laughs> a few steps. <laughs> he's basically right. Yeah. But what's really helpful is this, again, this understanding of difference, because I think there can often be this tendency to think, well, why, why can't they, you know, be more like me or, or why, why is this thing good for me and not for them? And it's really just because we're all born different. We, our constitutions are different. That's, that's just the world is made up of humans with all these different combinations of, of doshas and, and our constitutions are all fine-tuned in, in slightly different ways. And yet, Yvonne, right, yet when we start understanding our own tendencies and we start living in a way that does not exaggerate it further, we all come back to a certain equilibrium of that, you know, that nice, warm and moist place of balanced function of building transformation and movement. So our life's work is to basically understand what's standing in the way of me and this function, and then kind of work on it. Like, I, I'm very much like you. I was growing up very much like you, but I was very vata, you know, in terms of the movement, and I could still get into that tendency. But I know that as, of, as I've adopted more grounding practices and I've adopted more grounding foods, that has definitely, evidently changed. In fact, somebody who doesn't know me from childhood would, would find it sometimes hard to believe that I had that tendency, right? But because I was able to identify my own bodies and mind's tendency, I was able to work on it. And this is the power that Ayurveda gives you. Because otherwise, Yvonne, you know, today there's A superfood, tomorrow there's B superfood, and they all sound equally good. And you don't know if they apply to you or not. Most often they don't. Uh, and that, that's when you say, hey, I can filter all of this information outside in the world that's happening, this craziness, to kind of see what works for me. I say, one of the things that I say, Yvonne, is the way the health industry works today. It's like, imagine the experience of going shopping in this loud, crazy mall where there's like all of these vendors trying to sell you stuff. And you have no idea what you're shopping for, what your gender preferences, what the weather is, what the occasion is. 
And that's kind of how we are because we are looking at all of this health information. Oh, this is good. That is good. All of these vendors trying to sell you stuff, but we don't know what the minute you know your body and the minute you know what you need, right? Imagine walking into a mall knowing exactly I need these pair of white pants for the winter. You've already filtered out a lot of the noise. Similarly, when you understand your body and I say, I need this kind of grounding foods for myself, you've already filtered out a lot of noise. And tomorrow there may be 10 superfoods, but you see, hey, they, they're not grounding. You know, they're like, let's say a very lightweight or they're just, you know, they're like popcorn flying in the air. So, you know, it's not for you, right? So the minute you identify grounding foods and the properties that you're looking for um, or whatever it is, you're identifying some more spicy foods or you're identifying more, more foods that'll keep you stimulated. Mm -hmm. You know what's for you and what's not for you. So the bio-individuality, like you said, mm -hmm. is a great gift. It teaches you to accept yourself, accept others, and yet mm -hmm. it gives you uh, the, the power to be in balance. It's a, it's a very sort of compassionate practice I feel. And I think if we can learn about our own bodies and if we can learn to apply this science of life to ourselves, I think we can sort of learn to apply it to others and, and help other people. Uh, I think there's this saying in Buddhism that the extent to which we can look clearly and compassionately at ourselves, then we can feel confident and fearless about looking into someone else's eyes. And it feels like that's what Ayurveda has the potential to do if we can treat our own bodies with kindness then we can sort of extend that out towards others I think that's really fantastic yeah it's a lovely it's it's just lovely and I think it's also deeply spiritual and deeply scientific it brings all aspects together and of course it's way beyond the body right it's it's about it's about your mind it's about your spirit it's about all aspects. In fact, there are chapters which talk about social conduct. The chapters that talks about sexual conduct. This, this, it's everything A to Z. You know, it's a complete, like I said, it's a complete science of life. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm really, I'm really um, struck by the fact that you have actually been studying the ancient texts and and decoding them um, in some courses that you've been teaching, haven't you? Um, and I've been thinking a lot about beliefs recently and how it's our beliefs that ultimately the way that they cycle through our minds that ultimately lead to our character I think it was Gandhi who said that you know ultimately our we start off with a belief and then it, it goes through a process where in the end it, it becomes who we are in the world because it becomes our thoughts and then our thoughts and then our actions. And I wondered if Ayurveda had anything to say about beliefs because, and, and, and how our beliefs in relation to our bodies and then also the environment and the world. I mean, it's such an ancient text, but what, what advice does it give us in terms of, of beliefs? Right. So Ayurveda, of course, is connected again to the yogic sciences and Ayurvedic psychology talks about the mind, you know, so the five senses, this is how we engage in the world. The five senses, they take information and they deliver it to the mind, right? And the mind processes that information 
and keeps it in a storehouse, right? It's called buddhi or the intellect. And so you first, you first take it in a, at the first level, what you absorb deeper into your intellect. And then there's a third layer called the inner wisdom. You know, your deep, your deep intuition, your pragya, it's called your inner wisdom. And what happens often, there's distortion at the level of the, what you consume through your senses and deliver to your mind, right? Based on past experiences. We depend on the past experience. You and I can look at the same thing, but get a different signal in our mind. Mm. And if you're fresh into something, depending on the experiences that you have, like for example, children often have, and those first few experiences, that journey between the mind and the intellect, right? Like that mana and buddhi, these are the terms in Ayurveda. What is happening in between that, right? What are the story? What is the narration? Mm. And it's mainly that narration which creates that little, that those beliefs in your subconscious mind. And Ayurveda routes you again to the yogic path, which is mainly about working on that baggage. That baggage within you through which you actually look at the world through your senses. As adults, it's the baggage for kids our job is to build less baggage. As adults, the job is to offload baggage. Mm. The good part is the baggage is not deep within because deep within us is pragya, is that deep inner wisdom that we all have. It's we all know when I'm opening that last bag of chips, that extra last, you know, that extra chip that I'm eating, your inner wisdom already knows that this is that extra chip, right? Mm. Or when you're upset at, at our, when we're upset at our children and we're saying things to them, um, which is not because of what they've done, but because of our own internal triggers. We know it. We know that this is what I'm doing. So the, the baggage, the good, the good news is that the baggage is not very deep because very, what's really deep is the inner wisdom. Mm. The baggage is, is up there, but it's constant working on that baggage through silence and observation of when it comes up through becoming aware. I mean, all of the Vedic sciences, the Eastern sciences, Buddhism, Jainism, all the Vedic sciences, they're all about self-awareness. Mm. It's all about bringing awareness to the baggage we carry. Mm. So it's not just awareness to your body and, and what your body needs. It's also awareness to your mind and your, your actions and your thoughts and your beliefs. Yeah, that's oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And like your mind makes up your chemical environment at the end of the day, Yvonne. I'd say every time you have a thought, your body will release a corresponding chemical. Stress will release cortisol, excitement will result adrenaline. And there's a certain chemical, just, just as we feel comfortable with a certain sugar level, with a certain, you know, if you, get, you, you eat a lot of sugar every day you want, your body's going to like that sugar. You have a lot of stressful thoughts every day, your body's going to like that new chemical environment. Whatever a chemical environment that your body gets used to becomes its comfort zone, becomes its addiction. That's why people who've had trauma in childhood seek out trauma for their whole lives unless they worked on that, right? Mm. So it understands that your mind will determine your chem the chemical environment in your body. And when you can work on it and create a new normal for the chemical environment, and the chemistry of your body will affect the biology of your body. So the mind is a very important part. The mind determines the chemistry, the food will help the biology, and you put them both together and you really have the power to live, to live a life that you want to live. That's so interesting. It's, it's that thing, isn't it, of recognizing and bringing that awareness. And then from there, once you have that awareness, then you can sit with 
you know these these difficult experiences or feelings and then and then eventually they they will dissipate yeah that's that's really incredible um i wanted to ask you about parenting um in an ayurvedic way i know that you have two girls and i wondered about how um your role as an ayurvedic practitioner has has influenced you as a parent and the way that you bring them up and i think luckily ivan because i've had the ayurvedic spirituality and psychology with it right it's not just limited to the body i think it's been actually a very liberating and fulfilling experience right so let's say when my girls were younger i was more of a stickler about like oh, they should do this they should do that and we had like this whole routine in place uh, especially when my older one was and then i realized that it was not serving a purpose at all because it was creating such a tense energy within me you know that inner wisdom told me that something was wrong now being a practitioner and uh, being somebody who seeks to be on this path it's about letting my girls of course i have there's some set structure there's some set practices and we can talk about that even that we like to do but it's more about creating a safe space for them to explore their bodies and mind and bring awareness to it right so it's more it's more about reparenting myself than parenting my girls um and uh, the, you know it sounds like a complicated process but it's so much easier than than taking another human being and manipulating where they should go in their life right i mean it's exhausting it's just an exhausting process but we have certain practices of for example eating warm foods not eating certain fruits or cold foods in the winter because i i understand i'm responsible for their physical nurturing as a mother the universe has planned it that way mm. um you know we do oil massages there is a bet you know there's certain number of hours now my older one is almost 14 so i can't uh, it's been hard to impose a bedtime depending mm. on school work but you know there's a certain number of hours that you do sleep mm. uh, you know if you're and the girls have just learned this into it like they've just learned it through immersion mm. right because they see it happening if i impose too much if i talk about it too much when i grew up even like it was just spoken about like very simply like hey it's cold let's put on a jacket right now it right. was just as simple as that right it was just like the 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 problem and the antidote and it was just understood so it never felt heavy it never felt imposing mm. it was just like a first language we learned it i seek to pass it on to my girls as a first language mm. and i still understand they're living in the normal world they go to birthdays you eat your cake and you eat your pizza very happily we we indulge in treats ourselves right all the time whatever the girls want but then it's just around the timing of the day around the seasons the winters it's more hot chocolate than the cold ice cream things like that so to keep it normal to keep it fun and there's a lot of humor in my house even because otherwise it can get too serious when you're doing this kind of work right so uh we're goofy we're funny all the time and i think that creates a safe space for the girls to also explore who they are Yeah oh gosh i love that um i think that's also really interesting what you're saying about it getting too heavy because i think so much about being a parent just can when we feel like well, what should i be doing and i should be following these rules or this book you know said that i should be doing it this way um but i i was just thinking there when you were talking about how maybe the best thing with our children is to kind of ask them what would feel good 
and how I sort of have an instinct to want to do that. And then sometimes I feel confused when my children want to have the sweets in the, at the supermarket aisle or, um, and they seem to think that's what would be good in that moment. Um, I, I do think that they, they really do think that would be good for them and they, they've lost touch with what their body needs or what do you think is going on there? No, so Yvonne, in terms of food and nutrition, the kids are not supposed to know unless they've overeaten, right? It, we are, as parents, we see even in the, in the world outside, like the baby bird waits in the nest, the, the mother bird goes and gets food for the baby bird, right? Because they are not supposed to know at a young age, right? But as they're growing up, part of our responsibility is to start getting them to tune into what's going on that, hey, you ate so much for lunch that that snack was too much, maybe you think, what is your tummy saying? And, you know, that kind of stuff, you start with the more obvious things like the quantities of food, or when they eat in, let's say, a lot of ice cream at night and then had congestion in the morning, you get them to tune into that congestion and say, hey, are you feeling congested? I'm like wondering what you ate last night, things like that. Right. But at the same time, you like, it's as parents, it's our, the safety and the structure of our children is primarily our responsibility. And that's what I tell my girls that we have law and order, just how, if you lived in a city without law and order, would you feel safe? And they're like, no, so we have law and order. But it's up to us. We don't need to have a lot of laws. We can be, there's no dictatorship. There's gentle law and order that falls for everybody. And it keeps us all safe and it keeps us all going. And as you guys, girls get older, the reins will get, you know, looser and softer and you'll create your own rules. There's also this other thing where we say there's, with freedom comes great responsibility. With responsibility comes great freedom. And freedom without responsibility is the perfect recipe, recipe for disaster, right? So the girls are learning these concepts and there's a little bit of back and forth, but it happens and it works. And um, I would say both my girls are highly self-aware. Of course, there's, we have tons of other areas which are challenging. And I'd say most of those are about me being uncomfortable with my girls having, you know, for example, when my older one gets anxious, I say the journey is not about getting her to be less anxious. The journey is about me being okay when she's anxious. Because the minute I'm okay, I let her go through her emotions, process them, finish the journey, get out of it when she needs to. Mm. It's like we have to just be with them when they visit their own internal dark rooms. All mm. childhood, all life is about being able to go into a dark room and then seeing there's nothing there, it's, it's fine. There's the dark room, looks scary, but it's, it's all safe. And as a parent, that's all we have to do is allow our kids to go into all the dark rooms mm. with them feeling that here I'm there. I'm not freaking out with you in this dark room. Absolutely. It seems like so much of what you're talking about is trust. And it's actually learning to trust yourself on a really deep level. And it's trying to encourage your children if you're a parent to trust themselves as well and then also trusting them that you know it's that thing as a parent that tendency we have to jump in or blame ourselves or but actually if we can take ourselves out of the picture and be objective and look at it expansively if we can just let them go into it and experience it then be there for them to comfort them that's always the best approach it's just 
remembering it and you know having the awareness to do it as much as we can and to comfort ourselves even to to be extremely kind and support ourselves as well because it's tough work it's tough work to see these beings blossom and having and to resist the urge to always be like hey you know so i think we i think parents i think all parents need should get therapy should get support just so that they can support their children better to feel supported means to be able to lend support and oh. it's whatever it takes to feel supported a, a, a parent must do yeah oh i believe that so much when we were talking before the podcast started about dr laura markham and that was one of the most profound things that she said you know we were talking about just how parents aren't valued and supported you know it might seem as though they are in a superficial way but i think deeply i don't think there's that sense of a sense of value of the the huge job that they're doing in in bringing forth the next you know generation of people and and just how much work there is in it and how much support parents need in doing that job yeah um, and just the loving kindness that they need you know the deeply require the loving kindness yeah and 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 also we need to give that to ourselves and learn how to give that to ourselves yeah. and and for me i think as i mentioned earlier i ayurveda it seems to have this tenderness built into it some of the practices that i've read about um like you know sort of massaging yourself with warm oils um in the morning it 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 might seem some of them might seem like wow how could i possibly find the time for that or these things are seem they seem really self indulgent but actually when you think about it how much time we might spend on other things like getting distracted on our phones or watching something on television in the evening actually i i've tried some of them myself and even if you just spend a few minutes on some of these practices it the the feeling of self compassion and tenderness that it gives to you it really does make it worth it are there any practices that you could recommend to our listeners just any small practices um linked to ayurveda that they could try to incorporate into their lives to, this is my favorite yeah to bring some yeah, tenderness sorry. into their day-to-day lives so you want a couple of the few practices that i highly recommend one is the abhyanga you talked about is application of oil on your body it just you can apply it like you would apply moisturizer you don't have to spend 10 15 minutes you can just you know if you can spend 5 minutes great just rubbing oil onto your body preferably you wait for 15 20 minutes or have like a small yoga practice after that so that your channels of your body your pores open up and the oil can sink in deep in places in your cells places where food cannot reach you know and it's very protective that layer of oil and then you go and take a bath your oil has already gone where it needs to go and that's one practice you can use sesame oil for a cold body or cold season uh, and coconut oil for a warm body or a warm season that's one of my favorite practices tongue scraping is also you know you can buy a copper tongue scraper and when you brush your teeth after that you scrape your tongue this stimulates digestion takes out toxins 
the tongue is the, is the start of your digestive system and the anus is the end of it. And just how you have a bowel movement every day, you have some residual gunk come up to your tongue. So using that tongue cleaner will help to clean that out. Um, the other couple of practices that I recommend is everybody do, should, should do some level of breath work. Um, you know, it's, it's physical, it's mental, and it's breath, right? It's food and it's mind and it's breath. Your breath is what connects your body and your mind. And whether it's to a yoga practice, whether it's to a practice called alternate nostril breathing, which is my favorite, uh, I think that breath is something that everybody should learn to connect with, definitely. And then I would say one of the most important things in Ayurveda is to eat a heavier lunch, lighter dinner, and sleep by 10 if you can. Mm. There are actually quite simple practices, but... I can I can definitely see how profoundly they can affect your life and how much positivity they could bring into your life. Um, and you mentioned breathing. Uh, there's been it's sort of I feel like a lot more awareness of of breathing and the importance of of breathing practices recently. I don't know if you've heard of Wim Hof and his. Um, of breathing. course. Yeah, he's he's incredible, and um, also. Um, just I just for me personally um just trying some different breathing practices I have found it really profound just incorporating it into sort of a, a short morning routine um and um I've 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 really sort of enjoyed reading about the vagus nerve and actually there's been a lot of research on how profoundly um, breathing affects the vagus nerve it really does have a hugely calming effect I mean there's been lots of science and lots of studies done into it hasn't there absolutely and like by the way that's all Ayurveda right the the breath that goes through the central channel of your body and spine it is it's explained in such detail in such precise terms uh when you go back to the yogic and Vedic sciences, it's just, it's mind-blowing, Yvonne, that they were able to, to understand and explain this in great detail back when we didn't know what the vagus nerve was, right? So the breath really regulates the vagus nerve. The breath of the right nostril and the left nostril have different function. Um, and when you regulate both the nostrils, one carries a cooling energy, one the left carries a more cooling energy, the right carries a more heating energy. One is related to the masculine, one is related to the feminine. And when you can regulate that, you can regulate the environment in your body, your temperature, your mind, it's brilliant. And that's really bringing balance to the body, which is really such a core fundamental feature, isn't it, of Ayurveda? Absolutely. Absolutely, Yvonne. These are just great, great things. So Nidhi, I, I really wanted to ask you one final question, um, which is um, a question I always ask at the end of the podcast. Um, so the idea behind the tenderness revolution is in having this quality of tenderness for ourselves and others is the three C's um, because they enable us to fully see the truth about the way things are. So they are courage, curiosity, and compassion. And I wanted to ask you, if you had to choose one of these qualities that really means the most to you in your life, what would you choose out of curiosity, courage, or compassion, and why? It's crazy you say that, Yvonne, because I use all three, and I use all three words 
I, I will pick one though, but I just want to tell you, like I literally have a chart and I give this journaling chart to my clients as well, where I say, assess where your action comes from. So it can have fear, anger, guilt, shame, etc. See, and then say, if you were to do it from courage and compassion, what would you do? Uh-huh. Right. So, you know, so we literally have like a whole wheel and the whole chart where we say, when it comes from fear, this is a bit of a, you know, so constantly, like, that's what I like to do, that if I act from courage on a daily basis, I check in with myself. Uh-huh. But I would still choose curiosity because if you are curious, that's all you have to do as a human being is become curious about the world outside and the world within. And what you're, I, I'm like, you never have to find the answers. You only have to ask the questions and the answers just they present themselves, right? All my life is built on curiosity and your curiosity to know yourself for that self-discovery will take you into the depths of courage and compassion and make you face your fears and do everything. The more we keep our curiosity on, the more we live. I mean, that's the experience of life. That's amazing. I I totally agree. I, I feel curiosity is so essential to living a, a really full life and a, a tender life and I feel if you can be curious about curious about yourself and what's going on within yourself and for me that's a big part of Ayurveda and it's that's the way you've described it but also if you can be curious about others I think you can have a lot of compassion for them and uh, it, it really feels like to me it's the opposite of a judging sort of mindset so um, I love that. I love what you said. And Nidhi, I've really enjoyed speaking to me you. Me too, Yvonne. Thank you so much for having me. This was Thank a pleasure. You. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Tenderness Revolution. I hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the tenderness revolution i hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us